The following message is by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. Gracious Father, we thank you for the fact that you have moved moved in time and in space to do something that we could only dream of. You've acted to make us yours. To close the gap that existed between you, a perfect and holy God set apart from us and, and, and people like us who have fallen. We thank you for that. And pray that as we look at this whole Christmas season here, that you would build in us hope. Hope that you are at work now in the world to continue to draw us to you and hope that you will come again to make it all finally right. Would you create in us also, Lord, an awareness that it is not all right right now? I think sometimes we, we live deceived. Content with what we have here, not realizing that what we have is, is a poor imitation of what you mean for us to be and mean for us to know in intimate relationship with you in glory forever. Create in us longing and creating us a hope for the fulfillment of that longing. And thank you, thank you, thank you that you have initiated the first step of changing everything to make it new. You've already done that, and it is not yet done. Would we think a little bit about that today from the passage in First Samuel, and I pray that you would move here in this room to give open eyes, open heart eyes to us, As we look at it and consider it, give clarity to my words as I talk about it. Lord, order what I say so that it's it's clear and helpful and not confusing and and unhelpful. Lord, we most need we need a renewing of our own hearts, a renewing of our church here, a renewing of your church in this nation in this in this world we need you to to act and to change so we ask lord would you pour out the spirit spirit of god would you have your way with us here this morning create renewal in me in each of us here bring your kingdom in new ways in clear and glorious ways in powerful ways bring your kingdom and create in us a desire for that, Lord, that, that is discontent with what we have, but wants your kingdom to come and your will to be done on earth here now as it is in heaven. Hear our prayer, Lord, and meet us and teach us. Convict of sin were appropriate, but I pray, Lord, this morning, encourage your people and lift them up to hope. Hope that you are at work to deliver and are doing something marvelous. Lord, make us to see that, I pray, from this passage in First Samuel. 
Build your people. Build your church. Honor your name. And it is in that name, the name of Jesus, who is Lord, I pray. Amen. We do turn our attention this morning to 1 Samuel chapter 11, where we find another thread of history that has been going on in Israel while we follow, have been following Saul. We've been following for several chapters now what God's been doing through this man named Saul. He's raised up a king, as Israel requested. They asked for a king, and he provided one by raising up Saul, sending Saul to Samuel, and then sending his spirit upon Saul to anoint him. And then finally, as we saw last week, sending Saul to the people of Israel, revealing him. The Lord goes through great lengths to clarify, as we saw, to identify this is the one. This, this is my choice for king. This guy. Narrows it down, shows him actually even physically where he's located. And, and that's a marvelous thing, a great act of mercy, because as you'll recall, verses 18 and 19 last week again pointed out the evil of the people in asking for this king. God had been a great savior, a great deliverer king himself, and they rejected him and said, give us another king. And he emphasizes that so as to point out the mercy and the kindness of God to say, okay, I will give you one, and I will give you a good one. I will give you a man on whom I will put my spirit. Here he is. Will the people accept him? That was a question from last week. And as we saw, most did. Most looked at Saul and embraced him, though for the wrong reasons. He looks big and strong to me. Good enough looking at all the outside reasons. But others, however, looked at the outside reasons and said, no, even after God was so clear in identifying this is the one, still others said, no, we reject him. We don't believe he can save us. But both with a common problem, looking at the outside. We are to be people who live by faith, not by sight. And so the challenge to us was, will we by faith accept God's king over us and God's kingly reign over us, even when our eyes by sight Say, it's not a good idea, it won't work, we shouldn't go there. Will we trust him or not? It's a challenge put to us last week, and we left it there as Saul went home to Gebeah. He'd been selected as king, but not yet enthroned. That was still coming, and so during that short period there, he goes home and goes back to work on the farm. The period doesn't last very long because, as we find out today, there are things going on in Israel. The very type of thing that led the people to ask for a king. There are invaders, foreign invaders in the land, and we meet them today, meet some of them today, we'll meet others later. A threat going on in Israel that is on the east side of the Jordan River. Most of what we've seen is on the west side of the Jordan, but this is just on the east side of the Jordan River. There's a threat there. And in this story, God's going to show himself again, strong to save, and he's going to use his king. That's what we're going to look at today. Let me read the chapter, all of chapter 11, 1 Samuel chapter 11, and then I'll pass back through it to clarify it and make some observations. 11 verse 1. When Nahash the Ammonite went up and besieged Jabesh-Gilead, and all the men of Jabesh said to Nahash, Make a treaty with us, and we will serve you. But Nahash the Ammonite said to them, On this condition I will make a treaty with you that I gouge out all your right eyes and thus bring disgrace on all Israel. The elders of Jabesh said to him, 
Give us seven days' respite that we may send messengers throughout all the territory of Israel. Then, if there is no one to save us, we will give ourselves up to you. When the messengers came to Gibeah of Saul, they reported the matter in the ears of the people, and all the people wept aloud. Now, behold, Saul was coming from the field behind the oxen, and Saul said, What is wrong with the people, and why are they all weeping? So they told him the news of the men of Jabesh, and the Spirit of God rushed upon Saul when he heard these words, and his anger was greatly kindled. He took a yoke of oxen and cut them in pieces and sent them throughout all the territory of Israel by the hand of messengers, saying, Whoever does not come out after Saul and Samuel, so shall it be done to his oxen. Then the dread of the Lord fell upon the people, and they came out as one man. When he mustered them at Bezek, the people of Israel were 300,000 and the men of Judah 30,000. And they said to the messengers who had come, Thus shall you say to the men of Jabesh-Gilead, Tomorrow, by the time the sun is hot, you shall have deliverance. When the messengers came and told the men of Jabesh, they were glad. Therefore the men of Jabesh said, Tomorrow we will give ourselves up to you, and you may do to us whatever seems good to you. And the next day, Saul put the people in three companies, and they came into the midst of the camp in the morning watch and struck down the Ammonites until the heat of the day. And those who survived were scattered, so that no two of them were left together. Then the people said to Samuel, Who is it that said, Shall Saul reign over us? Bring the men, that we may put them to death. Referring to an event from the end of chapter 10. But Saul said, Not a man shall be put to death this day, for today the Lord has worked salvation in Israel. Then Samuel said to the people, Come, let us go to Gilgal, and there renew the kingdom. So all the people went to Gilgal, and there they made Saul king before the Lord in Gilgal. There they sacrificed peace offerings before the Lord. And there Saul and all the men of Israel rejoiced greatly. First Samuel chapter 11. We begin at Jabesh Gilead, a city we last visited in the closing chapters of the book of Judges. Remember that book? Remember those chapters? Amazing chapters, notorious for atrocities, all committed by Israelites against Israelites in Israel. It's an alarming section of the book of Judges, all of which is designed to make us, the reader, look at it and say, what on earth is going on here? These people need somebody to put some order to this. They need a king. Exactly. And that passage connects directly to our passage today where that need, that question is provided and answered. It's connected in several different ways. First, the towns. Gibeah, you recall from Judges, was the place that committed the first atrocities. It's Saul's hometown brought up right here. The other town here, Jabesh Gilead, the last time we found that, it was being destroyed, wiped out by Israel because Jabesh Gilead had of all the tribes of Israel that had been rallied to fight against Gebeah and Benjamin, Jabesh Gilead sat that one out. They refused to participate, and so Israel wiped them out. The two towns there are the two towns here. And all the people that were rallied to fight against Gebeah and Benjamin were rallied by the cutting up, the dismembering of the murdered woman, remember? Well, here there's a dismembering of an oxen. Same, similar thing. And the troops that are gathered there, Judah's troops were separated out and used differently 
in a special way from all the rest of the troops of Israel. Similar here. And afterwards, there was after the fighting was mostly over, there was this questioning of who was it that refused to participate? Let's get them. That was Jabesh Gilead. Same sort of thing here. There are a number of threads connecting these passages. We're supposed to have that in the background as we see, ah, now here is the answer. The king. It's the point of the book of Judges, and it shows up here now. So we're at Jabesh Gilead, and it's besieged by Nahash, the Ammonite. He's been marching throughout all of the lands of the, of the Israelites on the east side of the river. This is pretty close to the River Jordan, so he's come through a bunch of land there, creating all kinds of havoc and terror. And the men of the city fear him, and they ask for a treaty with him, literally a covenant. They say, let us be in covenant with you, meaning... Make a peace treaty with us and we will be subservient to you. We will take you on as Lord Nahash. Though they already have a Lord and are in covenant with someone else, this is like a slave with a master volunteering to be the slave of somebody else. You can't do that. You're owned by somebody else, but, but they're doing it out of fear. Nahash agrees to it at a terrible price. Either he will kill them all, and take the women and children that he wants, or he will let them all live, provided that they become his subjects and he gouges out the right eyes of all the men. Ouch. When you read this, you start thinking about that. Obviously physically painful, but there's another point to it also, that it would render them militarily incapable. It'd be hard to shoot an arrow with no right eye. It'd be hard to fight from behind a shield covering the left side of your face with no right eye. Perpetual enslavement. Not to mention physically terrible. This is a terrible set of options. But notice, end of verse 2, what the real goal is, thus bringing disgrace on all Israel. Thus bringing disgrace. That's the real goal. Thus bringing disgrace on all Israel and on Israel's God. Nahash's army is deep in Israelite territory at this point. And he's doing this to humiliate all of them. I march in here, as if he's saying, I march in here, I do whatever I please to you people. I put you between a rock and a hard place. You want seven days to look around and see if there's any help? Sure, by all means, I'll wait. Send out messengers. Rally anybody you can. See if there is one to save you, to use the language of verse 3 from the word Messiah. See if there is. See if you can find anywhere one to save you. I'll wait. Bring him. And the end result of this is I'm going to defeat all of you and subject you all to humiliation. He's quite confident. <laughs> wow. So, they send out messengers to Gebeah, probably elsewhere too, but they go to Gebeah because, after all, Saul lives in Gebeah. They send messengers, and, and the people hear about it, and they weep, except for Saul. When he comes in, and he hears about it. Like another soon-to-be king later in the book, when he hears about this affront and this humiliation, he is not intimidated. He is angry. How dare one do this to the people of Israel and their God? The spirit rushes upon Saul, and Saul is angry at the affront and motivated to action, and he rallies the fighting men from all of Israel. He devises a strategy. They attack 
and they liberate the people of Jabesh Gilead. After the fighting is concluded, verses 12 to 15, we have this, this end section, which is a bookend, really, that, that matches the beginning of this story, which is very, really the end of chapter 10. We have Saul, who is anointed as king with some doubters, and here at the end we have Saul, who faces some doubters and is now finally crowned as king. We have some bookends around this section. Saul's coronation happens as Samuel directs them all to go to Gilgal. And notice how much emphasis is placed on Gilgal there at the end. The last two verses name the place three times and refer to it with the word there four more times. Seven references to this place in two verses. There's a lot of emphasis on Gilgal here. Why? What is Gilgal? Well, recently we've seen that Gilgal was the place that Samuel told Saul to go to and to wait seven days. Saw that in chapter 10. To wait upon the Lord for seven days and then Samuel would come and give him the word of the Lord. So it was obviously a special place of meeting with God. We know from previously before that, it was one of the places that Samuel had gone on his circuit of judging Israel. One of the three places that he stopped. But all of that is because of what Gilgal was originally, if you go back to the book of Joshua. Just on the west side of the Jordan River, it was one of the first places where Joshua and the conquering Israelites had stopped after they passed through the Jordan River. And at Gilgal, there was an altar with 12 stones set up that they had taken from the bottom, the dry riverbank, the dry riverbed, the bottom of the river commemorating how God had brought them into the land by His mighty hand. And it was at Gilgal that they first ate the Passover meal in the land. And the provision of the manna stopped, and they ate of what God had provided. And it was at Gilgal that they had renewed the covenant by circumcising all of the men who had gone without that important Old Testament sign for 40 years. Gilgal is the place where God took a, a, a big time out and pointed out to His people through reminder after reminder, I am the one who brought you out of slavery, who carried you through the wilderness, and by my strong hand brought you into this land and has blessed, blessed you with all this bounty. You are my people. I have led you. It's an important place. There, that's the place to which we will go and renew the kingdom. And there they went and crowned Saul. That's the passage. And from it, I'm going to make two observations. It's the first one. The Lord continues to deliver through the work of His chosen King. The Lord continues to deliver through the work of His chosen King. Obviously, there is a terrible problem here, a, a terrible situation here that's arisen for, for these folks, and it is resolved by a military victory, and Saul is repeatedly at the center of all of it. Saul's the one who gets angry. Saul's the one who resolves to solve the problem. He rallies the people. Verse 8, Saul mustered them at Bezek, organized them into a fighting force. Verse 11, Saul came up with the battle plan and led them in victory, which is why by the end everybody is so pro-Saul. 
He's the one who catalyzed Israel, organized them, made a plan, and led them. He, indeed, was the one to save. They went looking for one to save them, and they found him, Saul. Sort of. Sort of. That's fair to say, and that's accurate to say. Saul did do all those things, and he, and he had to. That's how God has designed the world. God has designed the world in which we have bodies, we have minds, we act, we think, we plan, and if we don't, nothing happens. So, yes, it is fair to say that Saul did that. However, if you ask Saul, how did that happen? Verse 13, he will tell you, Today the Lord has worked salvation in Israel. That's what Saul says. I did it, but the Lord did it. He's not just being modest here. He's being accurate. That's true. Verse 6. What started it? The Spirit of God rushed upon Saul. That's where it came from. So it stirred Saul to anger and action. God, once again, we saw this back in chapter 10, God once again pours out onto this man, pours out a, a rushing, a flooding of, of a unique, special, marvelous, intimate experience of the presence and the power of God. This is not just intellectual. It is spiritual and supernatural. God, the Holy Spirit, pours upon him. And when that happens, it changes him. There's there's a difference that happens inside of Saul such that he sees the same set of facts as everybody else, but evaluates them differently. Everybody else weeps and he says, this should not be. Why? Because of the Spirit of God. The only reason, not because he's big, bad, bold, he's a timid man hiding among the baggage. It's the Spirit of God that worked and changed him. This must not be. God's Spirit pours out such that then Saul thinks, plans, acts as he must, as he must, as he must. He does it because God's Spirit so flows on him affect him and the people end of verse 7 why do the people respond not just to effective human leadership the dread of the Lord fell upon the people it says that's what caused them to come out in unity to fight the dread of the Lord that's the causal relationship there The Spirit rushes on Saul, and he's angry and acts. The dread of the Lord falls on the people, and they come out. Again, causal. God pours on then all of the people a unique, powerful comprehension of his awesomeness. Not really a real word, but of his awesomeness, of his wonder. Men and women, God is awesome. It, it, should be, it should be enough for me to say God is God. It, it's not because it's the same word and that's boring. 
really, he's God. He is the Lord. They knew that. You know that. But he did something and poured out on them dread of him. A deep, controlling fear of the Lord falls on them such that they are more afraid of disobeying God than they are of facing war. Oh, that He would pour out on us the dread of Him. Not that we would shake in our boots in fear. I don't mean that. The Bible does not mean fear in that sense. It means something that grips you such that nothing else matters, but there is God in front of you. God does that, and then what happens is people make decisions. I think I should go. And they make decisions and they start walking. And they have to make decisions and start walking. We, we must act. But God must first move inside of us such that perspective is changed. What we see here in, in one man and in many men is a transformation by the renewing of the mind. At least for a moment. God grabs them and they see everything differently and act then in accordance with reality. This is the Lord Himself at work. This is the Lord Himself going to war. It's not about a farmer king named Saul or a civilian national militia. This is God Himself going to war. Through His chosen king and through His people. By the working of the Holy Spirit. The Lord delivers through His chosen king. He asks that king and He will say, Apart from Him, I could do nothing, we could do nothing, but with Him all things are possible. He's going to deliver through his king. But what exactly is the deliverance about? Let's look again. Notice the end of verse 2. What's Nahash's main goal? Not just physical injury or political servitude, but that towards the end of bringing disgrace on all Israel. This trouble is mainly about disgrace and contempt, condemnation. Versus honor and glory. Who gets which? That's the question. See, it's, it's, it's a zero-sum game. Nahash and his guys, or the Lord and his guys? One or the other. That's what it's about. And let's add in one more interesting fact. Nahash's name, it has a meaning. A literal meaning, his name means serpent. That's interesting. For those who don't know the story of the Bible, there has been a serpent at war with the king forever. This is another turn on the same old story, another channel in the same old river. Began on page two of the Bible. And it is the background of everything that goes on in the Bible and everything that goes on in all of history. An ancient serpent, an ancient serpent on the attack. And what we have here then is, look at this, God 
raising up a newly chosen king to be the one who saves his people from a servant who is about honor and glory versus dishonor and shame. What is this about? It's the same story. This is kind of like, and as you read more of this, you realize all of the Bible is kind of like a Sherlock Holmes short story. If you've read any of those mysteries or maybe seen some of the modern television or movie adaptations, you begin by reading a short story about a woman in a picture and another short story about a, a national treaty that's been stolen. Another short story about a diamond. Another short story about some guys breaking into a bank and about a murder and etc. And then eventually as you keep reading, you realize something keeps coming up. Someone keeps coming up. Some shadowy figure in the back. As you read through the stories, and if you've read them, you know, what at first seems like a series of unrelated events all eventually trace back somehow to a shadowy evil figure who is behind it all. A guy by the name of Professor Moriarty. He appears here and there, rarely named, then becomes more common, more visible, and Holmes begins to figure out it all comes back to this one who is behind all of the evil in London and around the world. And finally, as he comes to realize that, he tires of stamping out all the little problems and all the little petty issues and resolves to put an end to it all by taking out Moriarty himself, even if it costs him his life. These verses and passage after passage are a bit like the Sherlock Holmes saga, or perhaps the Sherlock Holmes saga is a bit like the Bible and a bit like reality. There's a little event here, and a little event there, and a little event here, and a struggle here, and a battle here, but they all are a piece of the larger war that has been going on since the very beginning and is going on even today. There is an ancient serpent who is about taking the people of God. He is about taking the glory that belongs rightly to the ruler onto himself and say, you be subjects of mine. Interestingly, we all then, in a sense, we all live in Jabesh Gilead, facing destruction, and shame. But you have to realize that what's going on in your life is not really about the gouging out of the eye, painful as that may be. And it's not really about the car accident or the loss of job. It's not really about the marital issues that you're struggling with. Painful, hard, as all those things may be, what they are really about is the big question. Who gets which? Glory and the honor, the contempt and the shame. Who gets which? That's going on every moment of every day in your life. That's the question being put to you. 
Do you realize that? Most commonly, we don't. Let me say something. I'm going to put this to kids with, with the hope that the adults can translate it. I, I live, my, my house is a, a fairly Christianized house. I have an office in a building that is a school that's about Christian values. I, I swim in a lot of Christianized water. And I think that most of the kids I bump into, most of the time, just assume it and never think about it. We're fish in the bowl. We never see the water. And we are processing, so kids, I ask you, teenagers especially, think about this. Are you processing life? Are you thinking about life? In a way you may not be aware of, that's just like everybody else. Are you thinking about life? What makes me feel good? What is fun for me? What would make me embarrassed and I want to avoid it? What's hard and so I want to get away from it? Are you processing life like that? Are you thinking through your day just like that? These toys are fun to play with. This video game is fun. These clothes will make me acceptable in the hallway. These ones aren't and won't. I avoid them. I think that's how you're living. That's how a lot of the rest of us are living. Completely unaware. I would suggest, I hope I'm wrong, completely unaware that all of that is a question It's a question being put to you. Who is your Lord? You're processing all the clothing choices, all the entertainment choices, all the time and resource expenditures. You're processing them all, or very many of them, I'll say, through a grid of what in some way makes me feel good and avoids me feeling bad. Putting it simply for kids. Maybe adults, maybe you need to translate that a little bit. But are you thinking about, is there an allegiance question on the table here? Is there, is there a loyalty? Is there a, this might hurt, but I have a king. Question that you're totally avoiding, never asking, never answering. Think about it. Men and women, think about it. We very often go and look for a life that is a life of peace and ease and satisfaction defined by the people around whom we live, sit, and walk. But this world around us is our enemy. Do you realize that? I'm serious. The world 
has a completely different system and set of values. And if we walk down the hallway of life saying, what will provide for me acceptance? What will produce for me humiliation? What will provide for me pleasure and joy and rest? What will provide for me trouble and hardship? I know which way we will go, and I would suggest to you that's not God's way. Granted, a hundred questions about details arise. Sure, yes, yes. And also granted, there is great joy and rest and peace in following God. I I would absolutely, completely, totally maintain that. I think it's beyond where we live most of the time. We're asking on the first level, what makes me feel good? I'm going to do that. In, In every situation, there is a larger question being asked of you. There is a larger war being waged for your soul. And the the marvelous thing, the marvelous thing is that God Himself, God, is willing and in fact eager to enter into that war with you, for you. That's a good thing. It's a very good thing. We, in this large war, the question of, of shame and dishonor, that question that is raised for us, has unfortunately been answered by our sin. We have, we have each, all of us, Christian or non, we have all lived shamefully. We have all thought shamefully, spoken shamefully. It it come to your mind right away, things you wish you hadn't said, thought, done. So our accuser knows there is shame attached to us. He wants to exploit that. He wants to work that. And gloriously, gloriously, in mercy... God has stepped in to take care of that. And He speaks over us, over you, His people. There is no condemnation on you who are in Christ. Satan will attempt to work that still in our lives, to point it out to you, to bring it to your mind and remind you. But at that point, we have to fight and say, no, the Father has made war against you, Satan, and He has conquered at the cross. My shame is removed. That's done. But it will come back again and again in a different way. Not just a shame before the judge, before his judgment seat, but a shame in the actual walking through life, a shame before other people and a shame before your own heart. And to that, I say, may God pour out His Spirit on you and remind you and confirm in you He is a good and gracious forgiver. 
And may He pour out His Spirit on you to move you to follow His decrees away from that which is shameful. That's a good thing. There's hope in that. What it means is you're not trapped in whatever it is you're walking in right now. He will give you His Spirit. He will move you to follow Him. He will move you away from this one who wants to claim you, draw you to treaty, to covenant with Himself. God, by His Spirit, will move you away from that. That's a glorious thing. The Lord is still at work to deliver through His King. At the cross and in His Spirit working in you. But you have to fight. You. Me. We. You have to fight. You have to fight to believe that He has removed off of you shame and condemnation. You have to fight to believe what His Word says. You have to fight to trust what the Spirit speaks to you through the Word. To fight for obedience make decisions to say no and to say yes such that you will, people will look at you and say you've done a marvelous thing and you will say it is God who has done it in me but you have to do it may he move you by his spirit to follow his decrees that's how he aims to deliver you now first point but I have another observation that I need to make The aim of God, here's my second point. The aim of God through his king is the renewal of his kingdom. The aim of God through his king, what God is trying to do, what what his goal is, what he's aiming at, through his king is the renewal of his kingdom. Verse 12, the battle is over. And really the battle is treated very quickly because it's not the main point. The battle is over. The threat from the serpent is, is set aside, at least this rendition of it. And we come to the concluding chapter where he, concluding paragraph where he calls them to go to Gilgal and there to renew the kingdom. To renew. Which is an odd word if as you think about what's going on here, there isn't a kingdom yet. In verse 14, when Samuel talks about renewing the kingdom, Saul hasn't been crowned. How do you renew something that hasn't begun yet? Did, is that a slip of the tongue? Did he mean, let us go there and inaugurate the kingdom? Let us go there and make the kingdom official? Does he really mean renew? Yes, he does. That's why he sent them all to Gilgal and why the text so emphasizes that place. It reminds us that there already is a kingdom long before Saul was born. It's been a kingdom since the beginning, since the creation. God, king over all of his earth. There's been a rebellion in that kingdom since the very beginning. But he has always been king, and he has always been aiming at and working to powerfully repair that which has been broken. We look out now at a world, and we live in a world 
think about, I want you to think about kingdom here for a minute. Kingdom, the kingdom. We live in a world that is a kingdom in rebellion and is marked by evil and fall and death and destruction and pain and grief and loss and disorder and decay in every corner of the globe. It was not made that way. And God has been at work from the very beginning to change all of that. There is something in us that in in every person, man, woman, child, Christian or non-Christian, there is something in us that longs for, that has a, a taste for something that's not here and you can't quite get But he's at work to bring. He's at work to overcome all of that. He took a great big step when he brought up people out of Egypt, made a covenant with them, carried them through the desert into a land of promise and poured onto them his bounty. Took a great big step. But it fell apart. Read the book of Judges. So Saul's another addition Another attempt to prop this thing up. And it's wonderful. They inaugurate him. They they, they crown him as king. They sit down and they they sacrifice peace offerings. They eat a feast. A feast of, of shalom with God. And they rejoice greatly. Everything is wonderful. Here is the the people of God. Here is the King of God. Before us is the bounty of God. We sit in the land of God and eat in the presence of God to the joy of us with our God. And that lasts all the way until next chapter. Really? I mean, we we have the, the seeds of the discord sown in the very next chapter and we're at war again by chapter 13 doesn't last. There's someone else that this is pointing to. There's some other one that full of the Spirit will actually, when crowned, renew the kingdom. It's all about Christ. It's all about Christ. He's going to come one day, it says. He's going to come one day. The, the one who saves, real, the one who really saves, he's going to come one day. And finally he came and he said, the first public words in the Gospel of Mark, Behold, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the good news. Here's the kingdom. I have come. And he walks and he begins to overcome, to reverse the pain, the destruction, the decay. He heals the, the leper. He gives sight to the blind. Preaches good news to the downcast, the poor. And he's crowned with thorns and 
lifted up and enthroned on a cross, and people say, no way, this guy can't save. Yes, he did. Obviously, he did. You know, you know the story. But it, the final time, the final coming, the, the final fullness of the kingdom, when all the curse is undone and all the tears and pain are wiped away, that day is not yet. It's still coming. But right now, we must not overlook the fact that God's aim every day is the renewal of the kingdom through his king. There should be a great hope for us in that. It should point us forward to say, as as was talked about and prayed today, there is hope as we look at the coming of the King. Glorious day that will be. But we need to, to, to not let that just ride out there in the future. We need to make that right now here personal about you and me. Because God's aim through His King is to have not just the big picture changed, but to have His kingdom come and His will done in you as it is in heaven. And in us as it is in heaven. Right now. So let me be simple and clear here. I need to be simple and clear because the danger is I talk about too big a concepts and it gets all foggy and nobody thinks it matters. So let me be simple and clear. You yourself need a king and need a kingdom. And you actually long for it. You were made for it. You long for it. And He not only promises it down there, uh, glorious hope that that is, but He means to bring you ever increasingly into it now. Now. You yourself stand before the King who has already won a great and substantial victory over your enemy. But the question that I'll ask you is, do you, though, do you need a renewal of His King reign in your heart over your life? Maybe you need to start that, begin a relationship with Him, but... Is his kingdom reign simply a theory to you? Or are you aware right now, I need that? Are you tired of of just punching the clock on life, walking down the hallway, living in response to all of the the stimuli of this world, are you tired of that and realizing there's something inside of me that wants more? I'm I'm not talking about some more as, as an excitement or a thrill. I'm talking about more as in a real rest, as in a as in a real relationship with this one that we call God. Are you 
languishing, stuck, maybe consciously walking in in unrepentance, maybe just subconsciously off, not sure what to make of that. May the Lord Himself pour on each of us a a unique and marvelous comprehension of His reality to pour on us the dread of Him. May He put on, on you, on us, something different and something remarkable that leaves you with as if scales have fallen off clear-sighted grasping of Him, a hoping in Him, different than, than the intellectual understanding that you already have. Do you need that? Do you want that? Myself, I know plenty. I want reality. I want intimacy. Do you? O people of God, I plead with you, do not rest content in the languishing. Do not rest content in the knowledge of desire the tasting and the seeing. Marvelously, God wants to be tasted and seen. His timing we do not control. But that is no reason, no excuse, that is no reason to say, well, there's timing I do not control, therefore I will take a nap. No. His timing we do not control. He takes the first step. The Spirit rushed upon, the dread of the Lord fell upon. He takes the first step. But do you want Him to step? Are you fine if He doesn't? Men and women, there is a glorious kingdom that is coming. It is not yet. It is coming. But it has already come in part. And to walk in that, to to live in that, what a glorious experience it would be. To walk through the day full of Him, in communion with Him, ever seeing Him, gripped by Him, so that all the reality of life out there is seen for what it is, and you see it accurately and truly because God fills your vision. I I plead with you. I plead with Him. May, May He fall on us. May He touch us. May He grip us. And I ask you, pray towards that end. Do not rest content. May He renew His kingdom in us today, in me today, while acknowledging that the kingdom in its fullness is yet to come, and while acknowledging that His timing is not ours, He chooses what and when. Long, long. Do you long? Really? Do you long?
And Lord, revive us to the obedience to His law that flows from sight of Him. May He revive us to the experience of His wonderful bounty that results from walking with Him. May He revive us to be a people of love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control and all of that in abundance. Is that your cry, your longing, your goal, your aim? Because it is His. To bring His kingdom to come and His will to be done in us here on this earth. Pray towards that end. Ask Him to bring it. Let me pray. Father, I'm thankful that you have acted to renew your kingdom. For us here now at the end of the ages, we see that you have done that finally in Christ. The King who reigns and is in the process of putting every enemy under his feet so that he will reign. I thank you that you have done that. Lord, I do not want that just in the theoretical. I want that in the, the, the lived, real, practical. So I pray for our church here, for my friends here in our body. Would you awaken us, please? Would you alert us to Lives lived, pursuing what the world pursues. Lives lived unwittingly in submission to the prince of this world. Lives lived content with the little that we have when far more is offered. Forgive us and move us, Lord. I pray, renew us to to a glorious experience of You. A nearness and a closeness. Take the truth that we know already and make it real. Make it to live. Where there is sin that we need to be confronted with, Lord, confront each, each one of us where appropriate. And mercifully then forgive and draw near. Lord, we need you. We look to you. I thank you that you have drawn near to us, have made us your people, and I ask for more. For me, for us here. Be honored in this church, I ask you, Lord. I pray in Christ's name. Amen. We now move toward.
Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.slcebfree.org or call us directly at area code 801-943-0091. Our mailing address is Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84121.